Hi everyone, welcome to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen and this is episode 19. Our guest today is Dr. Ian Sanjay Patel. He's the author of the book, We're Here Because You Were There. On today's episode, we're going to talk about British history. I know we talked about that last episode, but on this episode, we're going to talk about post-war Britain. Now, let me explain to you what that exactly means or why is it important. So, in 1945, World War II ends, but that's also the same year where Empire ends. Or supposedly ends. Now, Britons used empire as a way to define themselves, as a way to attain glory, prestige. It's a powerful thing to be part of empire and it's ending. How do the Britons cope with that? How does the royal family cope with that? How do you show your face in world politics? And as empire is ending, Britain is trying whatever it can to kind of maintain its position in the world. And who gets the sharp end of that stick? Migrants, immigrants, people of color. So there's a direct relationship between the ending of empire and the way they treat these people. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to discuss the racism, the immigration laws throughout the 60s and 70s and how they connect with the ending of empire. If you're interested in this book, you can get it from versobooks.com. Also, if you're enjoying Brown History and you're enjoying the podcast and you want to support it, you want to help out, consider being a Patreon because whatever you do means a lot and goes a long, long way. Trust me on that. So enough chit chat. This introduction is kind of long. Let's get on with it. Here we go. Usually I get people with a giant bookshelf in the background, but you you went the different way. So um, I read your book, uh, Verso Publishing gave me a copy and then I found and then I read it and I'm like, I need this guy to come on my podcast. It's a lot to digest. It, it was really fascinating. And you think you know what's what and then this book comes along and you're like, oh, so that's what's what. And I think the book is really about how empire ends and what Britain did to kind of to keep whatever power it can and whatever glory it can throughout post-World War II. So empire ends in 1945 because of World War II, but it doesn't really end with just like a moment. It kind of takes a long time to end. Can you kind of elaborate on on its ending? You know, there's a lot of confusion about when was the end of the British Empire. Um, You know, particularly in terms of public understanding, there's very little knowledge of, you know, when did the end of empire actually take place? And even uh, in terms of scholarly literature, there's there's some confusion about when the end of empire moment actually is. And, you know, there's, there's lots of ways of sort of approaching this. I mean, you could say that the end of empire really uh, is the loss of India. You know, so you could you could uh, identify uh, 1947 as the the end of empire, and then you could then going forward you could look at the decolonization in in Africa, uh, beginning particularly after 1960. Uh, but once you actually sort of you know what I sort of do in the book is begin to sort of dig into the end of empire, and you see that there was a a deliberate decision to always defer a kind of reckoning with that final end. And you realize that uh, particularly at the sort of constitutional level, it never fully takes place. And that's how I sort of open the book is to say that, um, that the British empire sort of transitioned to something called the Commonwealth. You know, it was originally, it was called the British Commonwealth, which, you know, uh, gives you the sense that it was British-led, and then it just becomes the Commonwealth of Nations. 
So it becomes a sort of uh, an association quite similar to the United Nations. It's a free, a free organization uh, in terms of, you know, the members freely choose to associate. Uh, but once you sort of uh, dig into it, you realize that the Commonwealth was never really intended to be the end of empire. Um, and, you know, the, the story gets particularly interesting uh, after, the, after the end of the Second World War. Uh, and of course, uh, Britain soon loses India. You know, India gains its independence in 47, first as a dominion, uh, and then later as a republic in 1950. Uh, but what the, the British choose to do is they choose to create uh, a new kind of imperial citizenship in 1948, which, you, which the more you think about it, is kind of a, a curious decision to, to make. Yeah. Uh, if, you know, if empire is ending. And even more curious is that they choose to keep imperial citizenship throughout the 1960s, which is really when formal empire is truly over. Um, and, and place, you know, colonies like uh, Kenya gain independence. And then even through the 1970s, you still have these imperial categories of citizenship. Um, and the idea of being a British subject has actually been sort of recodified in the post-war world as citizenship of the United Kingdom and colonies and imperial citizenship. And, and this really uh, carries on throughout the age of decolonization then. And, you know, that, that's the sort of uh, a big clue as to the fact that there's more to the story of the, of the end of empire than first meets the eye. And um, it's remarkable, really, that British political elites were able to constantly defer a final reckoning with the end of empire. And they, were all, they always chose to preserve the idea of the Commonwealth. And the more that I looked into it, the more that I realised that the, there were all sorts of um, imperial ambitions that were bound up with the Commonwealth uh, in, the, in the 1950s, certainly. And then even in the, the late 1960s, there were still these imperial ambitions for the Commonwealth. And, I, and, you know, the more I looked into it, the more I couldn't help but come to the conclusion that imperial citizenship was something that uh, that for various reasons they weren't prepared to, to let go of. And that had all sorts of implications for British citizens who were, who were um, you know, connected to former colonies. If I didn't know any better, I would say that Britain ended empire. And then in 1948, they allowed people from all over the colonies to come over, you know, freely and live in Britain. And many people would say that's a noble thing to do. But you say that there was a hidden agenda behind that. What would you say what the real intentions were to have people come? Yeah, ostensibly, it's a very uh, generous uh, piece of legislation at the level of citizenship rights. And I think, it, I think that it is, you know, it, you know, if you think about um, what was happening to citizenship uh, at that time, you know, we, we were entering a much more sort of guarded world of nation states that are protecting their borders. And then, you know, all of a sudden, Britain 
decides not to, having lost India, not to abandon the idea of the British subject, who, who always, ostensibly at least, you know, maybe more in theory than in practice, always had the right to you know, travel from one part of the empire to another, and even to enter the imperial heartland. Uh, they decide to sustain those rights in the post-war world and post-India's uh, independence. And, you know, so then, then the question is, uh, is, this, is this generous? Well, yeah, it, it is generous um, at the level of citizenship. But the, what you immediately realise is that um, there was those, the, the policymakers that, that passed that piece of legislation, so this was Clement Attlee's government, they, they never uh, foresaw the fact that um, you would have serious migration, particularly of non-white migrants, moving to the UK. I mean, uh, and part of this was that, you know, that kind of mass mobility was not particularly available to people at that time. It was, it was actually very expensive to migrate from, you know, the Caribbean to Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it never happened before. So if you think about the, the ideal of the British subject who always had uh, the rights, uh, uh, various, various rights, um, attached to attached to that subjecthood, they they'd never been exercised before. In the sense that the the, the non-white population in Britain had always been terribly small. So ostent- so ostensibly, the question then becomes: Well, if we if we if we sustain those rights in the post-war world, and we and we call British citizen sorry British subjecthood, we rename it citizenship of the UK and colonies, then maybe the same thing will happen. There won't be a mass migration. But what actually happened is that people did begin to migrate. People migrated from places like Jamaica. And then in the late 1950s, people began to migrate from India, Pakistan. But the, the, the reasons that the British decided to pass the act are obviously not... Uh, there is a certain sort of uh, imperial largesse in giving people rights. You know, there, there, this was always a point of imperial pride that you would, that you, that you know, every mem- every British subject was was uh, you know had had the rights of uh, any other British subject. Um, so there's a certain amount of sort of yeah, imperial largesse attached to that. But the but the the real reason, the real sort of core motivations for passing. The 48 Act are that it it's sort of it's a way of uh, retaining as much of imperial unity as was possible after 1945. So you know if you think about what's happening uh, after 1945, the world is rapidly changing. Mm-hmm. So you know you had the previous uh, what were called white dominions, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and they were now you know, sovereign nation states, and they just uh, signed the UN Charter in 1945 as not part of the Commonwealth, the British Commonwealth, but as but as independent sovereign states. So Britain is sort of losing its sense of a, a wider Anglo-Saxon British world. So if you if you pass that act and you rearticulate the connection between independent Commonwealth states and the imperial motherland, then you are sustaining the Anglo-Saxon community post-1945. Um, the, other, the other sort of 
uh, motivation for this was uh, Britain was desperate to keep India in the Commonwealth. You know, India had, uh, you know, had all sorts of uh, significance for the British, not least its sort of um, military manpower. Uh, and if and if Britain if 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 um, Britain knew that India was going to become a republic one day, because that was never in doubt, and republican sentiment in India was was already you know uh, absolutely um, crystallised by the time that the 1948 Act was passed, and Britain would really do anything to keep India in the Commonwealth, which would obviously so so what that allowed Britain to do is to say well. We may have lost uh, India as a crown colony, yeah. but we still retain India in the Commonwealth. So really, all the, all the, all that's changed is that India is, has been given full self-government in, in much the same way that Australia has been given full self-government. But both of those entities remain within a kind of British imperial constitution. Um, and India was was making a lot of demands at this time. You know, India was saying to Britain, we want you to create a common Commonwealth citizenship, including rights of entry. Yeah. Because the, 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 there was this huge history of Indians who were British subjects being denied entry to places like uh, Natal in today's South Africa or uh, New Zealand or Australia. So this idea of, you know, citizenship rights was a point of, uh, was an important sort of, had important political significance for Indian leaders at that time. And India was sort of demanding this common Commonwealth citizenship, uh, which was actually a sort of um, Schengen area before the fact, if you will. Um, but that was vetoed by Australia and uh, the other white dominions. But Britain decided to pass this very grand imperial scheme of nationality. So really imperial unity was preserved in, in that sense. And that was very important for Britain because Britain was still an empire after 1945. And, you know, and it was still an empire uh, after India became independent. And you know, we, there's lots of ways of sort of understanding this, but one thing that I mentioned in the book is that when the 1948 Act was passed, the, the, the New York Times said, had the headline, British Empire gets new nationality act. You know, and then, but then the, the, the story changes very quickly when migrants, non-white migrants actually start exercising those citizenship rights. And yeah. then realizes that, you know, uh, they have to do something, but what they're not willing to do is to, is to dismantle those imperial structures of citizenship and nationality because of the resonance of the idea of the British subject, you know, that had always been such a powerful part of the empire. Here you have all these non-white uh, migrants coming in and Britain is shocked to see how many people are coming over and, and it bugs them. And instead of kind of taking, dismantling that law that brought them here, they decide to add more and more restrictions throughout the 60s and 70s. Is the reason to not dismantle that law just so that they can have some kind of sense of empire within themselves, within their identity? Well, it's a very strange thing that sort of takes place because um, who can enter the UK is not defined by British nationality law. It starts becoming defined by British immigration law. 
So that means that British immigration law is in direct contradiction with British nationality law, which is really bizarre if you think about it. Yeah. So the immigration laws, uh, you know, they use that, that word immigration, but really it's a bit misleading because really what those laws are doing is that they're attacking citizenship rights that are provided for within British nationality law itself. And that was the sort of strange legal compromise that the British decided to pursue. They decided to use immigration laws to protect borders at home, but retain imperial citizenship, which had this kind of currency abroad, you know. So abroad, Britain can still sort of present itself as uh, not a nation state, but a Commonwealth-centric power including imperial citizenship, which is really the British kind of way of proclaiming itself on the world stage after 1945, saying, well, look, there's the United Nations, which is becoming increasingly important, but uh, and America, it sort of has its own Cold War to fight. But the British are saying, we are still a power, a very serious power, and we are a Commonwealth-centric power. We're not a nation state that used to have an empire. And, you know, there's a lot of sort of confusion within British political discourse at this time. Uh, you know, if you, if you look at the archives of the, the colonial office, the foreign office, the Commonwealth office, they're very confused about this kind of pull between decolonization and becoming a nation state, and then retaining a sense of themselves as a commonwealth and just what's going to happen to the commonwealth you know is the commonwealth just going to become a kind of damp squib a kind of an embarrassment or is the commonwealth going to be a block that can compete with the united nations in terms of influence the, the commonwealth okay I'm a, i tried to understand what exactly the commonwealth is like i mean at least in a in a financial kind of aspect of it like what is the like is does is does anybody make money out of this is there kind of uh but it just seems like it's just a club and the head of the club is the queen or the king and it's just a way to kind of feel that you have some kind of power that is that it is that just it or is there some actual kind of economical advantage of being in it yeah well that's a really good question i mean make no mistake the, you know, and if you're if you're an independent state and you're a member of the Commonwealth, you're not sacrificing any of your sovereignty to be part of it. So Australia, for example, is not sacrificing its sovereignty to be a member of the Commonwealth. Right. It can still pass all its own laws. So in that sense, it's a free association. So the, the, the independent states that are part of it decide to become a member and that this has certain constitutional implications, particularly at the level of um, Commonwealth citizenship. But it's at the discretion of each state to define what, what that citizenship is going to mean. Uh, but particularly in Britain, uh, you will get certain rights your citizens will get certain rights as Commonwealth citizens if you decide to join the Commonwealth. Um, and, you know, 
there are, the, the, the Commonwealth had various fora that it explored, but really there's, it's quite a thin, it's quite a thin layer in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of political economy, there, there were a sort of series of preferential trade arrangements and, you know, there was a relationship to sterling, British currency, which, uh, which had a, a quite, uh, had a life of its own in the, in the, in the 1950s, but it became increasingly less important as the 1960s wore on. Um, so really, actually, the Commonwealth means increasingly less to, uh, you know, depending on what the state in question is, but it means a lot to the British. You know, if you look at a state like Australia, the Commonwealth means, it means something. It means something constitutionally, it means something um, at various levels. But to a state like, um, to a state like uh, Tanzania or to a mm -hmm. state like India, the decision to be a member of the Commonwealth is much more sort of um, pragmatic. It doesn't have this kind of, you know, the kind of significance it does for Britain. And then, you know, in terms of the world organizations at this time, obviously the UN is uh, a very important organization and the Commonwealth becomes, as, as particularly as the 1960s wears on, it becomes, it becomes much more irrelevant. And Britain has to sort of deal with this in various, in various ways. But, but curiously, uh, you know, we still, we, Britain is still a Commonwealth. Uh, even though it's joined Europe, it integrated into Europe in 1973, but Britain remains a Commonwealth. So there's a series of sort of questions there, but the Commonwealth um, is, a, I suppose it's a, it's, you'd say that it's a, a free organization of member states. And when the colonies gained independence, they could make a decision whether to join or not, or to leave, you know, so, for example, Burma, when Burma decided not to join the Commonwealth. Uh, and, and then, you know, those trade relationships also kind of wound down. So, so what is the Commonwealth? It's, uh, it's a free association and, and, and not much more, particularly from the perspective of sort of today, mm -hmm. despite various sort of, despite the diplomatic life that, it, that, it, that it's kind of led to. Starting from 1962, I think, things started changing and British subjecthood became British citizenship. And to define to be a Briton, like an actual true Briton, according to uh, the British population, it meant being white, right? So, so the key focus after that were very strict immigration laws that just kept adding on and adding on. But then you say that decolonization true de true decolonization started in 1981 why 1981 exactly well just to go back to your question um not quite right that british subjecthood becomes british citizenship in 1962 it becomes british subjecthood becomes um citizenship of the uk and colonies in 1948 right right sorry yeah so after 1948 you have you still have British subjecthood, you have this other thing, which is synonymous with it, called citizenship of the UK and colonies, which, which, which we could easily call imperial citizenship. But after 1962, the right, the, the, the sort of core 
of citizenship rights, which is the right to live and enter and work in a country, starts to become restricted by immigration laws. And it's, it, 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 it's, it's indirectly racially discriminatory. You're right. If you sort of dig into those laws, the immigration laws in 62, 68, 71, um, they're very, they're very sort of ingenious and sophisticated. And what they're, what they, what they, you know, in terms of their consequences, what it means is unless you have a kind of ancestral connection to the territories of the British Isles, uh, you're not. You, it's going to be very hard for you to to enter. So you know, it's ancestral connection to the to the territories of the British Isles themselves. So that's not. And it's not a kind of blood ancestry, but because it's talking about ancestral connection to the territories of the British Isles, effectively, it's, it's, it becomes split along racial lines. Right. So if you're, if you're a white settler, if you're, if you're a family that decided to leave uh, Britain itself and to become a white settler in Kenya, you could come back to Britain in the 1960s without trouble. But if, but if you didn't have that ancestral connection, your father or your, or your grandfather, it's, it becomes very hard indeed to, to gain access. So it's quite sort of, it's quite sort of uh, incredible what they did really. They, they kept, imperial citizenship but they started attacking the right to enter that's insane okay but then as empire is ending sorry let me rephrase that um how does the how do countries that are kind of becoming independent and are kind of forming their own thing affect immigration policy in the uk for example uh uganda kenya they're very connected and i never knew that Britain would go to like India and try to convince them to let these citizens who were expelled from Uganda to kind of let, you know, open the door for them. And they refused. And I didn't know that they played such a, a role in international politics. This is where the, the, the story that I tell is not, is not really understood at all. And not, and not many people have sort of written about it because, um, uh, the, you know, as we said, there's three key immigration laws in 62 uh, 68 and 71 and the, the reason that they had to pass another one in 68 uh, is because they hadn't really factored in the situation in East Africa uh, and it's, it's a it's a sort of it's such a complicated story um, but but really we uh, I felt that it was kind of and, and I ended up sort of giving a lot of background because it, it, there's so much there's so many different aspects to it, but the British had not counted on the fact that the South Asians in East Africa would not, would not gain local citizenship when Kenya and Uganda in particular gained independence. Yeah. If you, if you think about it, when the British passed the 62 Act, they felt that they had all their bases covered. So even though... Um, yeah, they, they thought that, okay, uh, 
all the crown colonies are going to get independence. We're going to give them independence because, well, not we're going to give them, it's, you know, independence was, was, uh, was fought for. The British couldn't do anything to stop that. Um, but, you know, within, the within their rhetoric, it's sort of, you know, we're going to give them independence. Um, and, when, and when independence uh, occurs, anybody with imperial citizenship is going to lose that, that citizenship and become um, a local citizenship, a local citizen of a Commonwealth country. But even if they are uh, a Commonwealth citizen, they're going to be restricted from coming to the UK because of the 62 Act. But the South Asians in Kenya, uh, I kind of I won't go into the full details, but it was uh, it was quite hard. It was hard for them to gain citizenship of Kenya and Uganda for various reasons. Right. Some of them chose not to, and many of them also were sort of um, effectively were were made. It was made that it was very difficult for them to get it. So what they, what, what that means is they were left with imperial citizenship and it just so happened that they still had the right to enter Britain even though the 62 Act had been passed. So what Britain decides to do is it says we need a new immigration law. We're going to call it an immigration law but it's only going to apply to our own citizens, citizens with the same citizenship as the Prime Minister himself and, and because we we don't want these South Asians in East Africa. And uh, they knew that passing these laws would have all sorts of human rights implications. So they tried to solve the problem diplomatically by, by going to the Indian government, uh, led by Indira Gandhi, and saying, you need to take the South Asians in, in Kenya and the rest of East Africa, because we're not going to have them. And will, will you take them? Because if you don't take them, we're going to pass this law. They're, they're still going to have our citizenship, but they're, they're going to be stateless, really. Um, so you better take them. And, and, this is, and, the, and it's, what's so remarkable is the British were prepared to do this. Um, and they ended up losing a case at the European Court of Human Rights at the level which the European, human, the, the European Court of Human Rights said that it was a racially discriminatory law. And there was all sorts of other reputational fallout from this decision, but the British were determined to do it um, because they, didn't, they, were, they were so against further non-white migration, which they called coloured immigration at that time. She said no, right? And then they still put that law up. Yeah, she said... These are your citizens. And it's not India's responsibility to take them. Yeah. And we don't want you to pass this law. And, you know, Britain also went to East, to East Africa and it went to Jomo Kenyatta's government and said, are you really going to do this? <clears throat> because Kenyatta was passing um, policies which uh, made it very hard for South Asians at the time. So Britain was sort of prepared to sort of ask was prepared to try to do anything to stop, uh, to stop itself making good on its own nationality law, right? Which gave them the right of entry, and uh, and then Indira Gandhi, in you know, she said this in the diplomatic uh, meetings, but then in practice, she did actually allow many thousand uh, 
South Asians who were deemed to be Indian, of course, uh, back, you know, um, we shouldn't we shouldn't really say back to India because you know that uh, they're they're really you know uh, those those people were um, you know because the British said oh they they belong in India yeah uh, and we sh- we shouldn't sort of go along with that logic um, but yeah for for for, for whatever reason uh, no one's really told that story at length before about what happened there. What about in 1971? What was why was the law placed then? So in 1971, um, there was a new government, and the new government said that they were going to sort of finally solve this problem of uh, you know quote unquote coloured immigration. And what they did is they passed a new law, which was even more sort of strict, and and basically was an attempt to. Uh, stop anybody else with imperial citizenship from from entering the UK. Um, And and the 71 Act was an even more severe version of a kind of two-tier system of of British citizenship where it's kind of one set of rules for people who are uh, in practice, one set of rules for people who are white and one set of rules for people who are are not white and not resident in the UK. Okay, and 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 in 1981, you say that that's when decolonization started happening. Yeah, in the sense that it's only in 1981 that you have something called a British citizen. So that that those two words together, a British citizen, they were used informally in political discourse before 1981, but in law, a British citizen only. Uh, began in, in, in 1981, and it was defined as somebody who was, in the first instance, born in the UK. So what it's doing is that it's saying that it's essentially a nation state citizenship, that you become a citizen because you are, uh, you know, you are directly connected to the territories of the British Isles. Prior to 1981, it's an imperial citizenship. It's imperial citizenship. You could be born... Um, in, in, a com- in an independent Commonwealth state like India or Canada, or you could have, you could be born in Kenya colony, and you would still have primary British citizenship. So it's remarkable then that throughout, you know, that how late that was. Yeah, long yeah. time. Yeah. Um, all this Brexit and 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 uh, you know all that's been happening recently in the last few years. Is that Britain's kind of attempt to go back to its former glory? Is like a dream that they're kind of chasing? Or is is that it, the root of it? Yeah, I wonder. Um, I mean, you can't help but sort of think what it, you know, what does it, what does it mean, this kind of rejection of Europe? And, and then politicians sort of resurrecting they didn't call it empire they called it long-standing connection yeah very euphemistic (laughs) we have a we have a long-standing connection to india so maybe there's going to be all sorts of trade opportunities with india as an independent you know independently of uh the european um block so what, what does it mean this sort of saying well we 
India and Britain are part of a commonwealth, they're connected, and now we can sort of revert to those relationships. That's a, that's a sort of re-articulation of the same language that was happening in the 1950s. Yeah. Britain was still clearly an empire because it still had crown colonies in Africa. And it's also a reiteration of the language in the late 1960s where, it, where Britain is really a, kind of contradicting itself about what, to, what it wants to do. Does it want to be part of Europe? I mean, it does want to be part of Europe throughout the 1960s, but only in a kind of ad hoc way. The real kind of identity of, the, of Britain itself remains Commonwealth-centric. You know, Britain's always struggled to define itself as a nation state. You know, and various people have sort of argued that this is about class. Yeah. The idea of the British nation is not, is not very unified because of class divisions. But it's also an it's also an imperial story, you know. Britain as a nation state, kind of, it, it just sort of slips through your fingers. Uh, but Britain as a as a commonwealth, and we could even say as an imperial commonwealth, that seems to make sense in the minds of uh, British political memory, past and present. What would you think is a way to kind of end this dream and kind of move forward? Of, of trying to, you know, Britain's attempt to kind of uh, go back to the way things were. How would you say you could kind of just end this so that, you know, we can kind of move forward? Well, I think, I think, it's, I think it's unhelpful, this kind of overplaying the way that the British political elites will sometimes overplay their hand. You know, so this sense that the Commonwealth is, is this sort of really powerful, this really powerful thing in the world. It's clearly, it's clearly not, it's not real, you know, um, from India's perspective, its membership of the Commonwealth is, is, much, is much less significant than some of the comments uh, that British, British politicians made after, after the decision to leave the European Union. So I think this, I think there has to be a, there, there, I think it would be helpful to have a, a real a, a real final, and you could you could say that it's it's kind of happening to an extent. Uh, in you know today more than it was twenty years ago, a reckoning with what happened after you know what happened after nineteen forty five, what happened after India gained independence, what happened after Kenya gained independence in nineteen sixty three, and and. It, and what, it, what, what is Britain's relationship uh, with Europe, with uh, its you know, former colonies? Uh, what's its, what, is, what is its relationship with these yeah. places? And what, and what is Britain going to be in, in the world? You know, it's, it's, um, I think that it's, it's remarkable how that, that promise of reckoning it kind of comes into focus and then it recedes. Um, and, you know, just at the sort of level of public education, I mean, I was really, uh, I, when I was writing the book, I, I just couldn't believe how little of what I was reading is known. You know, it's really not known. This is and not taught in British schools, in public education? Right, exactly. It's, it's, it, it's not taught. It's not taught. Um, 
I mean, I know this, I know this uh, firsthand. I mean, I went to a, a state school uh, in London and there was no, there was no teaching of, of, of this story, despite the fact that many of us in the class were the product of <laughs> empire, the product of post-war migration. So yeah, I think, I think those things would, would really help and it would help sort of focus Britain on, on what it, on what it, what it uh, actually is in the world. Because what, what's going to happen is that, is the, and what has happened is that Britain has moved forward because it, it can't, it, it, it's, lost, it's lost control of world events. You know, right. you could say that it, or, it already lost world control of world events back in the, in the 1910s or the 1920s or the 1930s and 1940s. Uh, and, and that things change and Britain has to, Britain is forced to, to change with it. Uh, that's the whole myth of the end of empire is that it is that is the uh, decolonization wasn't given it was taken my last question and i guess it's a, a fun question what do you think of Preeti patel well it, 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 it's kind of ironic because uh today and when i when i published the book uh you know two of the great offices of state which is kind of the, the phrase as the phrase goes the chancellor and the home secretary are both East African and South Asians, Rishi Sunak and Priti Patel. Um, so it, there's just a lot of irony that the, yeah. uh, the, 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 the daughter of a Ugandan South Asian, uh, who, was, who, who, who was basically, you know, her parents uh, were the target of um, these immigration laws in 1968, uh, 1971, that she now, 50 years later, would be Home Secretary. So I kept on thinking, like, you know, does she know about this? Does she know this story? Does Rishi Sunak know this story? You know, does the does the Conservative Party, you know, how much, you know, obviously in in the, the sort of, in the memory of the civil service, in the memory of um, diplomats, and in the memory of politicians. Of course they know, but do the do the actual politicians themselves know? And 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 how do they deal with that irony? You know, the because the irony is so extreme. Yeah, right? yeah. Those two, with, particularly because Rishi Sunak's father uh, was born in Kenya, I believe. He's he's Punjabi ancestrally, but Rishi Sunak's family tr- uh, came from from Kenya, so he's directly targeted by the 1968 Commonwealth Immigrants Act. So you, you couldn't have much more kind of irony and um, kind of paradox there. Uh, and the fact that it's not spoken about is just really, that is really, really remarkable. The fact that it's, the, the, so for example, when they became, when Priti Patel became Home Secretary and Rishi Sunak became Chancellor, there was no sort of, there were no articles that, that went into this. Um, and you know, and and uh, and as I say, I think my book might be the first book to tell the story at length, to tell the, the full story. Yeah, and uh, I'm really, you know, I'm sort of, I'm really curious. Uh, I'm just really curious to know uh, if this irony is going to be addressed or not and and what it and what it means for the people 
what it means to the people themselves. But, you know, if you grow up in one of these families, you know, you know, you know, you sort of grow up knowing that it was really hard to enter the country. There was an immigration law passed that was directly targeting my father. She must um, know. She, I mean, she must know. It's a bit, it's a bit different with uh, the Ugandan Asians because the the sort of narrative around them is that the British took them in as refugees. Oh, and Idi Amin expelled all the South Asians from Uganda. But what I sort of talk about in the book is that a lot of those Ugandans, some at least some of those Ugandan Asians, were themselves British nationals. So they can't really be refugees if they are British nationals you know and some of them a few of them were fully fledged citizens so they had every right you could say to come to to migrate to the UK but I agree she must know thank you so much this was uh this was great this was so fascinating is there anything you want to add on or do you want to talk about a project you're working on or, or is something you would like people to see How was that? By the way? That was great. <laughs> it was great. It was great. Yeah, it's it's a lot to digest, especially when you're not a British. You, you're not from Britain, but yeah. but I I think people got the gist of it. That's why I wanted to ask, you know, like kind of like chronological order, so that people understood the the background, the context of it. Yeah. And I usually give a little intro about like a quick like what this is about, but it was good. Okay. Yeah, it's it's just it's it is. It, I was aware that it's just a really it's such a complicated story. This one, and especially because it's all this the, the law, the legal definitions and stuff. Because I want to be I want to be accurate. Yeah. It's so hard to kind of. It doesn't like you can't sort of like sum it up in sound bites really. Because people, if I was listening to it, you would you would you would be a bit confused you know because like what are all these definitions um, yeah but so, you dumb it you dumb the whole point the, the reason why this page is success is because i dumb it down did i dumb, did i, did I, I dumb it no no it was good and and i'll i'll i dumbed it i'm the dumb guy right so i come in and, and i ask you dumb questions and you kind of give me the quick of it and that's it but it was good it's just uh yeah it can be a little complicated but you yeah. can't expect everyone to understand the whole thing, but they can catch like pieces of it. Yeah. You know, yeah. so don't worry. Okay. No, I really appreciate you asking me. I was like, um, how, did, how did, did you, oh, you, you heard about the book because Verso sent it to you. Yeah. Verso sent me the book. They just like came out of nowhere and asked me for it, uh, asked if I wanted it. And I, I'm never saying no to a free book. Yeah. And then I took it and I started reading it. And then, and then I was like, this is, a, this is interesting. And then I read up on some of your, yeah. And then I read up on you and then I said, why not, you know, get you in. And that's it. Yeah. I, um, I posted your opening expert on my page. You know, right I, I posted your, oh, I forgot to ask you about the title, but I, I posted about the title on my page you know uh, what it meant and how this confusion we're here because you were there but yeah we'll see oh, did, you, did you put it on the instagram yeah and i'm gonna post a book on the instagram you know i kind of use it to kind of uh garner hype i'd be like this is the next book i'm i'm gonna talk about 
and then and then people are curious sometimes they buy the book and then and then they listen to the episode right yeah i am um... okay yeah no i'm i'm so grateful like it's... no man you wrote the you did all the work i did nothing i just i just came along with a microphone that's it no, I mean, I was so, I was so, uh, I was so happy when you you got in touch. I mean, it's amazing. I listened to some of the other episodes and I, I looked at the page. I mean, it's just, I'm, I'm so happy. I was just thinking, like those. I was when I was speaking earlier. I was thinking these questions, these these answers I'm giving are so long. They're like ten minutes. No, that's good. Uh, yeah, I kind of. Uh, yeah, it's always hard because it's that balance between. Um, like accuracy and then just kind of informality because mm-hmm. you know it's so, it's, so, it's so difficult because like part of the struggle is you don't want to give inaccurate information but the but to give accurate information you have to tell this whole like complicated story and I think that's part of the reason that um, the story hasn't been told is because very few people have been able to go through the law itself because it's just it's just like mind-bendingly complicated yeah but you could always, I mean, I always, the, I try to avoid, I just try to dumb it down as much as I can into story mode. Like as if I'm telling, talking to a, a child, you know, once upon a time, uh, the government didn't want Indians to come in. So they, they did whatever they can to stop them. And they added these laws and then, and, and, I don't know, it's complicated. And some I don't know. I avoid, I avoid dates. I avoid things that, you know, people won't remember. I avoid names. I avoid, you know, people have a short span, especially during in this generation, they have, you know, they're very quick to forget things. And I just try to, I just try to tell a story. That's what it is. Yeah. You know, that's it. It's just just change, take information and make it into a story format. And people will it'll stick with them more but it's like it's not it's not anyone's fault it's a complicated history like it's it is what it is it's so weird this idea of like a british world you know like you had these these other englands in canada and you know yeah but they didn't they didn't just want other englands in the form of canada new zealand australia there's also this desire for colonies and protectorates so it's not only a british world of anglo-saxons it's also this this world where you know asians and africans are coming under british tutelage and 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 for whatever reason that was so hard that that identity that the british had of of of, uh, constitutional development you know which is a bit which is obviously euphemistic they just couldn't let that go after 1945. Yeah. Um, but you know, one question I was going to ask you is, uh, I was just curious. Ask. Did you grow, did you grow up in Canada? Were you yeah, I grew up in Canada. Because that's so interesting to me because I was born in London. But Canada, uh, you know, there, there were colonies, British colonies in Canada well over a hundred years and and Canada was one of those Anglo-Saxon colonial projects yeah and, and then of course uh, Canada it decides to have its own citizenship 
after the end of World War Two, but it but it but it stays within the Commonwealth. Yeah, today and, is Victoria Day. Oh well, that's that's uh, ironic. Very, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, what is it? What is it like in that sense? You know, what is this? Is there much of a relationship to to Britain? Is it very? You know, what is the kind of um, imagine the kind of um, imperial imagination in Canada? Um, we have we don't have much. It's all really on the surface. We have Victoria Day. No one really knows what it's about. We have fireworks. Everyone gets a day off. They go to the park. There's no kind of like worship of the queen. There's no. She comes sometimes once a year. She comes once a year. You know, to one side of Canada and just shakes hands with people and leaves. It doesn't really affect us in any way. It doesn't add to it or it doesn't take away anything. We let. I guess we let it. We let it be because we don't really mind. It doesn't affect us. Like Victoria Day, we get a day off. We call it Victoria Day. No one really knows what it is. It's the birthday of the queen. But we don't really care to ask questions because we're having a day off. We don't really have to go to a parade or any- there's no parade or anything. There's no posters of the queen. It is what it is. And and why break? Why fix something that's not broken? You know, and that's it. There's fireworks, but we just do it for the sake of fireworks. We don't do it for the sake of the queen, you know, and that's it. And from the books I've learned from high school and college, there isn't much of a worship of the queen there isn't much of a kind of a glory of the british empire and we're so grateful there's really not much so that's it right that's interesting and at school uh, you taught about the british empire or you are you taught more about sort of north america we talk about world war ii and then from there we kind of go to north america and then we talk about canadian history right interesting not like we don't not like yeah colonialism wasn't really much talked about or mentioned more more likely it was canadian history but and by the way canada isn't such a innocent country either you know they did a lot of bad things to the people who were here before so they've got their own kind of mess to deal with and and they kind of um lie about themselves so they're really not focused on british history they're focused on their own history to kind of fix that exactly the kind of settler colonialism yeah is that that part of the conversation yeah yeah it is that's they did some really bad things and they're trying hard to kind of fix that and try to kind of explain themselves so what do you think i don't know god it, it sounds like it's a lot yeah I can only imagine because uh, you've got, yeah, you've got that kind of, there's indigenous people, there's this relationship to America and then there's this relationship to the British empire. Yeah. Um, but, but the relationship to the British empire is, is really not mentioned at all. It's really just a, a game. I find it like a, like a, like a theatrics. That's it on, on the surface theatrics where, Streets are named after Wilson Churchill and they're named after Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth. But that's it. Just names on streets. Nothing, nothing else. Well, for certain British people and the British political elites, that sort of relationship to Canada, Australia, New Zealand and South Africa, which is slightly more complicated um, because of apartheid and yeah. you know, that, that sort of changed Britain's relationship to, to that country. That's still sort of in the air. So, um, yeah. Well, are you surprised to hear my answer? Uh, 
No, no, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. It just made me, it just made me, I was actually thinking, uh, I'd like to, I'd like to know more. I'd like to know more. Cause I know, I know the story in the, in the 19, in the late 19th century and the, the first half of the 20th century. But I realized that I don't know much Canadian history after 1945. You know, what's funny. I'm thinking about it now and I don't really know much about Canadian history relative to British rule. So I guess we weren't in school taught how Canada yeah. obtained independence. Well, you, you have Dominion Day, right? Yeah, no. What is Dominion Day? Canada Day we have. Right. Okay. <laughs> and what yeah. Canada Day celebrate? Is that 18? What, what year is, is, uh, does that begin? I don't, I don't know. I have to Google well, it. I think, I think what happened... I mean, I don't know whether you you maybe don't want to put this in because I'm, I'm not. I don't but, know. Uh, but basically, there were there were like a bunch of colonies. Yeah. You know, there was British Columbia and others, and then they and then they federated, right, in in the late 19th century, and then they would they were basically given their own. The British gave them more and more self government, and then they were essentially a sovereign state a federated sort of sovereign state by, um, well, by 1930. So there's not the same, there's not the same history at all there as there was in America. No. And it's not really emphasized that way. I mean, I don't know. I don't remember. I don't recall any events that happened for Canada to kind of fight or resist British uh, empire, but, Honestly, 90% of it was more focused on on the people who were here already and and how Canada kind of dealt with them. Uh, sometimes it's, it's uh, most of the time it's more written more in a more peaceful manner than it is in a violent manner. I might I might leave this whole conversation like this, you know, on the recording because there's there's bits and pieces that are really cool. You know, I don't know. It's going to be tough to edit this out, but I'll try. This is your this is your episode, not mine. So grateful, man. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. All right, man. Anything else? Any of your last? No, no. All right. Great. Thank you so much. Take care.